The following is recorded from Marine Creek Church. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. We hope you enjoy this message. He did set me up for failure, you know. Like, he stole my entire intro joke about his corny jokes. So I'm, I'm at a loss for words right now. I don't even know what to say. The, the reason I was going to pick on him this morning is because the last time I taught... Apparently, the next Sunday, see, me and the family were sick, so we weren't here, and uh, he told you guys that I didn't repent before I taught last time, and therefore, God had stricken me with illness. Well, I was taking that time to let him know pastor wars are on. I'm coming after him up here. It's good to have you guys with us today, though. Um, I told the first service, after all those jokes, that they need to pray that our me and Matt's relationship be reconciled, and um, the reason I mentioned that is because uh, I'm going to teach today on reconciliation. And I know Matt touched on it last week, so I'm not going to rehatch a lot of what Matt said. I'm going to come from the, from the understanding that you guys already know that at some point in our past, we were in harmony with God. We were walking in harmony with Him. And then at some point during that time, sin entered into the picture and the relationship was broken. And we know that is called the fall of man, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. So the first point I want to make sure we roll out there with before we start building upon it is this. God created man and walked in harmony with him until the first sin. Now, the point that I want to make is that when that happened, when sin entered into the picture, there wasn't just one relationship that was broken at that point. There were actually four relationships that went from a state of harmony to a state of disharmony, if you will. The first one we mentioned, of course, it was our relationship to God. It said that Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God in the garden, but when sin entered in, all of a sudden they were hiding from God. Well, the second relationship that became broken in that is our relationship to creation. It said thorns began to come up from the ground at that point. And not only that, but God told Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will now work the land. Even in Romans 8, it talks about how the creation is currently crying out, waiting to be released from the bondage of sin. The third relationship that was severed was our relationship with our fellow man. Shortly after the the sin event in Genesis 3, in Genesis 4, you find that Cain kills Abel. And from that time on, man has practiced war against one another. Some of the most atrocious things done in human history are done between men. Man and man, war. The fourth relationship that was broken at that point was man's relationship with himself. In other words, death came into the picture. Sickness, disease, ADD, depression, whatever you will. Those things weren't in the original creation. God had created all things well. Now, if if we understand that there's four relationships that were severed at that point, we move forward in time into the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ came, And Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of this Messiah, this suffering servant. He says that he'll be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be bruised for our iniquities, in other words, for our sins. The punishment that brings us peace with God was upon him. And by his stripes or by his wounds, we've been healed. So the question I have for us, that verse, by his wounds, we've been healed. Does that mean that at the point that we come to Christ, that that time we realize he's the Messiah, that he reconciled us to God and we believe upon him, does that mean at that point in our life that instantly we've been healed of all physical disease, all physical infirmity? Obviously not, right? Death still reigns. 
We still get sick. The reason I bring that up is because a lot of pastors today, they teach that Isaiah 53, 5, by his wounds we've been healed, is a verse talking about our physical healing. Usually it goes something like this. They'll say, you need to walk in divine health. And typically that gets followed up with, and you also need to walk in divine wealth. And they take up an offering. But that's not what that verse is talking about at all. That verse is talking about our reconciliation that's happened with God, the healing that's came on that first relationship. So Jesus' first coming took care of that first relationship. It restored it perfectly to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. His second coming will take care of the other three. Creation will be renewed. Men will practice war no more, the Bible says. It says that this mortality, this body, this mortality must put on immortality. So death will be swallowed up. The former things, it says, will pass away. But what I want to focus on today is really the second point that I want to make, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took away our sins. Why? That we might be reconciled to God. So what does reconciliation with God mean? So we have a tendency to over-spiritualize that, I think, and we think, well, what does that even mean, we've been reconciled to God? Well, it means we've been brought back into such a harmony with Him that we can experience intimacy with Him again, just like Adam and Eve in the garden in the original, in the original place they were. Now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. What that verse is saying is before we ever even cared about God, before we even wanted to know this God, when we were still in a state of sin and depravity and hating him, that's the time he came. And he chose to save us from our sins, demonstrating that no matter what, he loved us. No matter the state that we were in at that time, he loved us in that. And that teaches us a great truth today, that post-Christ, that we can't do anything to change the love of God for us. Not one single thing. God's love is perfect, and he's created us to have fellowship with him. He's created us that we might have intimacy back. And that's the central point of the cross, what God did And that's going to be my main thing. If I get nothing else out there today that sinks in, it's that God has saved us, that we might have intimacy with him again. Now, I want to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where where reconciliation is mentioned the most by Paul. I'm going to start in verse 17 and read through 20. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. How? Through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, if you've ever wondered, man, what's my calling? What's, What's my ministry in the church? Well, there's one you can be absolutely certain of that's been given to all of us, and it's the ministry of reconciliation, to be able to go out into the world and let people know that God has provided a way back to him that through Christ and his death on the cross, that we have that intimacy back with God. He goes on to say that God was reconciling the world, not just a few people, the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, church, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's what we've been given. If we're going to understand 
what if if our job is to go out and give the ministry of reconciliation, it's very important that we understand what that reconciliation is. Now, to be reconciled to God, again, like I said, the main point I want to get at is what that means, what this intimacy is with God. Um, if we're going to teach the ministry of reconciliation, we need to understand that Jesus is the only way back to the Father. Now, how could I make such an exclusive religious statement like that, that Jesus is the only way? Well, if we take Jesus, if we simply just take Jesus for his words, in John fourteen six, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, therefore, bifurcated the entire world between believing in him and not believing in him and being reconciled to the Father. A verse I want to mention that kind of gets overlooked when it's talking about Jesus being the only way comes from Matthew 26, verse 39. And to kind of build the context of what this verse is talking about, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to the Father. And he knows the manner of death that he's about to go through, that he's about to be flogged, beaten, crucified. And he's in such anguish in the garden that it says that he's dripping sweat that's mingled with blood. He's in such anguish. And he's praying out to the Father, and he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Let me paraphrase that for you. He's saying, if it is possible, if there is any other way for man to be reconciled back to you, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, since there's not another way, I'll go through with it. Now, if Jesus is not the only way, then his life and his manner of death is the biggest blunder in human history because it was unnecessary. All God had to do was say, hey, you know what? All people have to do is do a little bit more good than they do bad. And they can get here. That's not necessary. Come back home. But that's not what he said. He allowed Jesus to go with through it. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And God had to pay the ultimate price to get the ultimate reward, us, back in relationship with him. So what does that relationship mean? What does it mean for us to be intimate with God now? Because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking John 3.16, right? That's the... That's the verse we all know, the one that's held up at all the games, that usually it's some crazy dude with weird hair, John 3.16 in it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So you see, Trin, it's not about a relationship, it's about everlasting life. It's about being saved from hell. Well, how do we define what everlasting life is? Do we quantify it based upon it's just a really long time? Or is it just really good life? It's eternal, it's everlasting? You know, Jesus defines eternal life for us in John 17, verse 3. Matt mentioned this passage last week, and I want to re-mention it. But Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus defines eternal life on the basis of a relationship, to know him. Now, the last time I taught, I mentioned this word to know. In the Greek, the word is gnosko. It's not talking about just some passing understanding, or I know a couple of cool facts about Jesus. It's talking about deep, deep intimacy. This word to know, gnosko, in the Greek, it's used also to define 
sexual relationships between a husband and a wife, that they know each other at the deepest of levels. You see, that's what the cross was all about, that we'd be that close with God again to know him, and that is what everlasting life is. I'm going to give you two examples this morning about this relationship and the danger of missing the relationship aspect. And the first one comes from a guy named Simon. Now, this, this example is coming to Christ in order to get something from him. In other words, Jesus is a means to something else instead of it just being about Jesus. Now, Simon, he was a sorcerer, and he operated in the area of Samaria. And um, all the people of Samaria were in great awe and amazement at the things that he was able to do through his sorcery. They called him the great power of God, actually. Well, the disciples roll into town, right? And they're given this message, this ministry of reconciliation that we're talking about. And it says many people in the area, they start to believe and they're baptized. And even Simon himself believes and is baptized. And it says that he was amazed at the things that the disciples were able to do. So you get a little picture there of his heart, of why he came to Christ. He was amazed at the things that were happening because of Christ. Now, we start to learn a little bit more about him as it rolls along. And it says that um, Peter and John come into town, and they're laying their hands on people and imparting the Holy Spirit to them. And Peter, or I'm sorry, Simon reveals his true heart at that point. He runs up to Peter, and he offers him money, and he says, let me buy this great gift so that when I lay my hands on people, they may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the entire reason Simon came to Christ wasn't about having a relationship back to God and having intimacy with God again. It was about what he could get from Christ. And I'm telling you guys, it scares me when I hear the focus of a lot of ministries out there where they talk about um, signs and wonders, the power that can be given to us, the things that we can do in Christ. Listen, all those things are great. And God does some amazing stuff through us. He does. But if that's the focus, if that's the reason we've came to Christ, listen to what Peter tells Simon. He says, Simon, your heart is not right before God. Repent of this evil thought and pray that God forgives you. And Simon, just sealing the deal to let us know his thoughts on the matter, says this, pray to God for me that none of these things happen to me. You see, still, even when his own sin is shown before him and his own um, his own, what he came to Christ for, he still would not go to God and pray to him. He even says at that point, pray to God for me. See, he had no relationship. Now, in church, like I said, we can have that same problem. We can come to Christ because we think he'll give us a better marriage. or We'll come to Christ because we think we'll get rich because of it or whatever. If that's our place, if that's the reason we've came and we never came to the cross for that relationship, and the Bible says our heart's not right. That relationship is vitally important. The second example I want to give is the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a pretty happening church. Paul founded this church on his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he comes back to Ephesus, and he actually sets up camp there for at least two years. So for two years, he's personally pastoring the church of Ephesus, I mean, that'd be pretty stinking cool to have Paul being your pastor. Nothing against Matt. Matt's great, man. I love Matt. But have Paul as your personal pastor, that would be sweet. Well, he writes a letter to him, the church of, to the, the, the epistle to the Ephesians. And um, within that letter, 
those first few chapters are so doctrinally rich, you get the idea that, man, he taught them good. They understood what the Word of God was all about. Well, you just dial it forward 40 years, and you arrive at the Isle of Patmos when John is receiving the revelation from Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. The first three chapters of that book are letters to different churches. One of the letters given is a letter to the church of the Ephesians, and Jesus had this to say to him. He said, I know your deeds, I know your works, and I know your perseverance. All three really good things. They were rich in deeds, works, and perseverance. He says, I know that you test those people who call themselves apostles, and you found them to be liars. In other words, you know the word. You're contending for the faith. Good job. He says, but nevertheless, I have this against you. You left your first love. In other words, you left me out of it. In other words, you're you're doing all the work of the king, but you've left out the king. And Jesus has a problem with this. And in our church, it's vitally important that all the things we do, whether it's community, worship, youth, that if it's not bathed in a love for Christ, then he has a problem with it. What does he tell the church of Ephesians? He says this at the end, unless you repent of this, I'll come and I'll take your lampstand. You think, what does that even mean? We'll come and take our lampstand. Revelation 2, verse 1, he defines what that lampstand is. He says, this is Jesus, he who walks amidst the lampstands, which are the churches of God. The warning that he's given the Ephesians is this. If all you're about is ministry, and yeah, you might be serving the poor, you might be having good community groups, you might all be united, that's great. But if you leave me out, you'll no longer have my presence in your church. Man, think about that. It's absolutely vital to God that we understand the reason for our salvation isn't just to get out of hell. The reason for our salvation is to have intimacy with God again and to reconnect with him like back in the garden and to develop that relationship. Now, one of the verses that will keep me up at night, and it has if I think about it too long, is Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is talking about the end of days, judgment. And he says this, he says, There will be many who come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. In other words, they recognized him as Lord. And they'll say, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your names? Have we not done many great things in your name? In other words, they'd built a great resume of Christian works. And he says, and I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who practice sin. Despite all that they had done, despite all the good things in the community they had done, it made no difference because they came to the cross, but they missed the entire purpose. Remember that word, there it is again, to know. This Christian life isn't about just doing a bunch of good works. Good works are awesome, and we're called to do them. But if it's not bathed in a love for Jesus Christ in building a relationship with him, then we miss the whole point. We might as well give up now. The fourth point I want to make tonight is that Jesus is better than whatever. And that's a youth joke. Just to give you the, where I get that from, we were in youth one day, and uh, my, my uh, 
guy leader. He leads all the older boys. And uh, he's, man, he's teaching them. He's like, and Jesus is better than, and he's reaching for that awesome word that's going to bring revival to the church. He's like, Jesus is better than whatever. And I think half the youth were pretty confused. They're like, man, I've heard of blasphemy. Was that blasphemy? I don't know. The other half were like, that's the greatest thing we've ever heard. So we chose to accept that it's the greatest thing we've ever heard. So you'll probably see some T-shirts coming out soon. Green Creek Youth, the calling, Jesus is better than whatever. So be looking for that. But what I mean by that is no matter what those things are in your life that you're putting as number one and you've pushed Jesus out to the periphery, we need to reverse that. We need to make sure that Jesus is the central figure in our life. Our relationship to sin will seriously inhibit our relationship to God. And we know what each of those things are in our own life because as soon as I mention it, the Holy Spirit brings it up as, yeah, that's the one I've been talking to you about for a while that you won't let go of. How, how do we get to the point where we can let that go? Do we, do we just reconcile in ourselves, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop looking at pornography, I'm going to do it this time, and guess what? We, we fall again. Why? Why can't we get past it? Because as soon as you put a law on the flesh, the Bible says the, the flesh rebels. Now, you might, be, you might do good for a while, but then you're going to get prideful in how well you're doing, and you're going to get judgmental on why can't everybody else do as good as me. Or you'll end up failing, and you'll go into a state of despair. What's the cure for this? John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about this. And he gives it in a parable of, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me will produce good fruit. When I tell this to the youth, I always do it in terms of an apple tree. I think it's a little easier for us today. But I say, you never walk up to an apple tree and you see the apple tree go, pop, apple, got an apple, did it again. Now the, the apple tree doesn't have to work at all to produce that fruit. It's just simply what an apple tree does. Abiding in its root system, it will produce that fruit. Jesus is saying, if you'll abide in me, if you'll come to me, if you'll build that relationship to me, you don't have to struggle. Why? Because one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Well, Lord, I'm angry all the time, and I'm I'm, I'm angry about being angry, and I'm going to stop being angry. Guess what? You won't. You'll fail again. Why? Because you're trying to do it in your own strength. But guess what? One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, love, patience. Lord, I, I'm getting burned out in ministry. I'm not faithful to my pastor. I tell him I'm going to do all these things and I can't do it. I'm going to work real hard and I'm not going to be burned out anymore. And we'll still be burned out. But one of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. We just finished um, wrapping all of our gifts and going through the whole Christmas process, of course. And we got to the ends of a couple of rolls of um, the uh, wrapping paper. Thank you. And um, what are those best used for? Swords, right? So me and my oldest daughter, we're having an epic battle. I'm getting my arm chopped off Vader style. And um, the, the unthinkable happens. Sure enough, 10 to 15 swings in. What happens? It breaks. It comes unraveled. And I see the water start to accumulate in her eyes. And I'm like, no, not this. Anything but this. And then all of a sudden, like a light bulb went off in her head. She runs into the kitchen and comes back. And guess what she has? Tape. And she goes on to tell me that she would have grabbed the duct tape, but she didn't know where it was. And at that moment, 
water started to accumulate in my eyes, if I've passed on any wisdom to my daughter that duct tape will fix anything, I succeeded as a father. We'll get to Balin wire when she gets a little bit older. But Jesus is the duct tape and the Balin wire of the Christian faith. In him, all things are fixed. And in him, all things are held together. You know, there's this analogy of this little girl who comes up to her grandfather and she has in one hand just a beautiful rose. In the other hand, one that's all mangled. She says, Grandfather, why when God opens the rose, it's beautiful. But when I do, it looks like this. He says, Sweetie, it's because when God opens the rose, he opens it from the inside out. And that's what God will do in our lives. See, when we abide in Christ, when we build that relationship, he begins to change the desires of our hearts. It's not something that we have to try really hard to do and deny how we feel. No, he changes us from the inside out. We can trust him in that. Last analogy for you. I was at work a couple of weeks ago, and um, I work at a machine shop, and we do tube bending and stuff. And um, my brother-in-law is showing me how to set up this big tube bending machine. He's over there, and he's looking down at something and lining something up. I'm like, hey, 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 what are you doing there? He said, oh, you see this little line right here? I'm like, yeah. He said, that's called the tangent line. You have to line your part up to that and then set in your coordinates, and it bends the part all right. I'm like, well, what happens if you don't line it up to the tangent line? He said, all the bends are going to be in the wrong place. Your part's going to be rejected. I'm thinking for a second, and I look at him, and I said, Jesus is the tangent line. And he goes, yeah, that's weird. I said, no, 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 Jesus is the tangent line. I repeat it to him. He's like, anyway, let's get back to this. But what I was saying was that when we line our lives up with Christ, the bent of our life will be towards godliness, the bent of our life towards holiness, the bent of our life towards him and away from those other things in life. This year is almost over. So many of us are going to make New Year's resolutions that we can't keep. Why? Because as soon as you put a law on the flesh, it rebels. Let's resolute something else this year. Let's resolute to grow in our intimacy with Christ. How do we do that? Prayer time. You've got to spend time with him. I know it's hard. It's like if that best friend you had in high school that you could talk about absolutely anything. There was never a silent moment. All of a sudden, 10 to 15 years later, you can't talk anymore because you haven't seen each other and it's weird. But you know if you spend some time together, it's going to be good again. You're going to get back to where you were. It's the same way with God. It's weird at first. You don't know what to say because there's no relationship. Go to him anyway. But if we tell ourselves, we're going to pray more and we're going to study more, guess what? We won't do it. Because we need our hearts changed. We need that desire to do it. That's where the relationship comes in. We've got to build that relationship with him. If we miss it, we've missed the cross. We've missed the whole purpose for the redemption of mankind. If you wandered in here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never heard the gospel, you've never believed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and you came to believe that this morning, man, let us know about it. Not so that we can be prideful that someone got saved, but it says that when one sinner repents, there's rejoicing among the angels of God. Let us join in that rejoicing with you. For the rest of us, let's push on to know Christ our Lord even greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning and, Lord, all that you seek to teach us. And, Lord, this has been such a difficult season for me and my family this month of December. 
Lord, I've lost my intimacy with you through this month out of all the busyness that we've been a part of. And Lord, my heart yearns, just like David said, as, a, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. And I look so forward to getting back into the routine, the regular routine of waking up in the morning and seeking your face. And Father, I pray for each of us, if we don't love you enough, if that desire isn't there to do those things, Father, if it's not in my own heart, oh Lord, give me that desire to persevere, to push on to you, to know you greater, to not be content with where I'm at, but Lord, press on. Father, I love these guys, and I pray your blessing over them and over their homes. May they be safe this New Year's. Lord, may you be honored in all we do. We love you this morning, Lord, and we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Marine Creek Church is located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. Thank you.